0: It's five o'clock somewhere. Join us for some grown-up fun, interesting and stimulating conversations that will motivate, inspire, or just make you laugh. And for more grown-up fun, visit our website, The Three Tomatoes, and the three is spelled out, and sign up for our newsletters. Now sit back and relax and enjoy the episode.
1: Greetings, tomatoes, and welcome back to the Three Tomatoes Happy Hour podcast. I'm Kim Selby, the San Francisco editor of the Three Tomatoes newsletter and your host for today's episode. Joining me in conversation today are Rita Batat and Dr. Abigail Brenner, and they are the co-authors of a book titled Replacement Children, The Unconscious Script. Now, you may be a replacement child or know someone if your life or someone's life was somehow redirected by a loss in the family either before or after you were born, or perhaps hopes, dreams, or projects that were meant for someone else were placed on you, or perhaps you were acting out a family role that felt inauthentic. You may have been adopted, close to my heart, a story there, or lost a twin, or grew up with a sibling who faced multiple challenges. These are just a few of the things that may lead you to question if you yourself were a replacement child. Now, this book is very near and dear to Rita's heart, as she is an adult replacement child, and it's through her personal experience that the book was inspired. Rita is a life coach, talent manager, and co-founder of ReplacementChildren.com. Abigail is an MD, psychiatrist, and author of five other books, She's also well known for her monthly blog for Psychology Today as well as numerous radio and TV appearances. So, now we know all about you. Well, <laughs> a few a few sentences about both of you. So, I welcome you and thank you for joining me. Thank
2: you. thank
1: you. So, let's begin by what is the term replacement child? What is a replacement child? I mean, I said a little bit about it, but Rita, do you want to go into that, the term yeah. Well, you know, the reason
0: we use the term replacement child is because it's a psychiatric term that was coined by two therapists in the 1960s after doing a small study about children who were born after the loss of another child. So it's kind of an unfortunate word and it conjures up all kinds of crazy things. But what it is basically is it's a child who is under the shadow of a loss and parents who have been not able to move forward. You know, it's not like moving on from a loss because even a miscarriage can cause such repercussions and difficulties. And this is about getting help for the family. It's a complex family dynamic that happens. So this is like stories in our book. It's basically true stories of growing up in the shadow of a lost or impaired sibling. And what does that mean for the other child in the family, which is never or very rarely addressed. There was very little, almost nothing on it. And yet there's so many of us who were either born after the death of another child, had a child become incapacitated in the family, have a child die in the family. What happens when the family dynamics are just totally thrown uh, in total turmoil, yeah. you know, and then what happens, and I just want to make one thing very clear that every child born or adopted after a loss is not a replacement child. A replacement child is happens because of a trauma. So it's not that it's when a child's life is redirected because of the loss.
1: Right. And a lot of times that doesn't come up until later in their life. They don't realize it. So right. Abigail, I assume that you have dealt as a psychiatrist with many people who have had issues around self-esteem or grief or or anything that may reflect back to them being a replacement child. Can you talk a little bit about
2: that? Yeah, well, the reality is is that I did not deal with this issue mostly in my practice. Uh, And I think the fault of that in a way was not mine. It was not, and it's not most therapists, but these things are generally not asked in an initial intake. When a person comes to see a therapist, they don't ask very often about the parents' mental health, about um, what happened to them, the parents before their birth, Were there other children? Was there a death in the family? Were there miscarriages, et cetera? This is a very important piece of an intake that has to get incorporated into the history when a person comes to see a therapist. It's very often missed. Uh, People never talk about it and they really are not even aware of it. So certainly if it's not raised in therapy, it's not an issue you know it's not an issue that people talk about anyway but obviously it is an enormous issue what has happened to the family prior to your birth is very important for you to know because things just didn't begin when you were born obviously people have their own history and you should know what has gone on before you came into being.
1: That's interesting that this is really a relatively new concept for those of us of a certain age coming in the 1960s replacement child right. is new so it's not really unusual that in when you were studying you know when you were becoming a doctor that this would not be something that uh, you would learn about or that you would know and it uh, you know when I was reading the book I think about all the people I know I'm like oh I think they were a replacement child, just based on some of the things. Tell us some of the qualities or not, I guess it wouldn't be qualities, but some of the ways you can tell if a person is a replacement child, not by virtue of their story, but by virtue of how they react in the world. What are some of those? You know, like I think low self-esteem is probably one.
0: Right, well, you know, I just want to say replacement indicates a trauma response, okay? And it alters a child's sense of structure. And this can come out in different ways, Uh, causing a disconnect with their own needs, undermining their sense of value, getting into things that were really meant for somebody else that were, they were kind of directed. Um, You know, the problem is only recently relatively recently, has there been grief counseling and support groups for overwhelmed parents. So, you know, when a child is lost or a sibling is in some way incapacitated, mentally, physically, or emotionally, family dynamics spiral out of control often. And the trauma that is a result of an overwhelming amount of stress from a situation that exceeds one's ability to cope can make normal functioning in the family very difficult. And that is a trickle-down effect. What happens with the next child? And this is also on a scale. It's not, you know, there's like middle of the road, there's Mm -hmm. extreme, and then there's people who have no idea that this has been happening to them. They feel like it just really doesn't apply to them. And then they start to realize it did when they really get into the dynamics of it.
2: Mm. Let me just say, too, if I may, that because uh, we haven't really said it yet. Rita indicated it or, or implied it. But it's about parents who have not gotten over the grief of the loss of a child. And the thing is, is that parents never really ever get over the grief, but people have learned through living and maybe therapy and other things to somehow move on in their lives. These parents, very often with replacement children, it's as if time stood still at the death of this child or at when something happened in the family and they can't seem to move forward. So then the child becomes the filler in for the child that passed or has, is incapacitated or where there's some sort of traumatic accident or something in the family that has shifted the focus of what this child is supposed to be. That's very important piece is this grief element that is so bad that just won't leave, won't go away, and nothing seems to stop it.
1: Right. It seems to me that, and that's exactly what I was going to reflect upon in rereading the book, is that it's so important for all of us, even though it's the hardest thing to deal with grief, to try to move through that.
2: Yes, yes, yes. And let's say too that uh, before maybe 20 years ago, 25, 30 years ago, people didn't deal with grief. It was just kind of get on with it and, you know, get it together, get it together, go out and live your life. And that's basically it. There was very little done for people in grief. There was no real grief counseling, even doctors were not sympathetic to people like mothers who had lost children, just kind of like, go have another one, just go do it. And there was very little help for people who, who have been in grief in the past.
1: Yeah, no, and it seems like there is so much more emphasis on healing our body through, you know, getting the grief out. I know I lost my own parents when I was 22 and 28. So that was, you know, like 35 and 42 years ago. And I don't think I dealt with the grief of that. Right. At all. And then I found out I was adopted. So I'm like, holy molykins, you know? Uh, And I think in some ways I was a replacement child, but when you read the book, you realize, well, these are some extreme examples in in the book. But I also wanna talk about some of the examples because it blew me away some of these stories where people would have a child who passed and then they had another child because the doctors told them to and they named them the same name. Yeah, yes. Well, that's because there's so little awareness of
0: what this does. You know, it's really, this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to get help for families. We're trying to get awareness for the people who have gone through this. So uh, I just wanted to say, Christina Chalinsky, Judy Mandel, and I are co-founders of the ReplacementChildForum.com. It's the first online community of its kind, bringing people from all over the world together. And it was formed to bring awareness and information to individuals and their families, as well as therapists and other health professionals and teachers, you know, anyone who deals with families and children. Mm -hmm. Judy and Christina have each written excellent books on the subject, and they're both replacement children also. And you can find their books and a lot of information by going to replacementchildforum.com.
1: All right. Well, we'll put that in the show notes too. Now, Rita, you have your own story of discovering that you were a replacement child. Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
0: Sure. You know, I had never heard of the word and I knew that I had been born 18 months after my 14 year old brother had died of a congenital heart condition. And I never knew how my mother's reactions toward me reflected this. I had no clue. And then one day, many years later, when I was in my 30s, I was sitting down with another mother at one of the schools my kids had gone to. And she was talking about her two children. And she said, you know, my oldest daughter is not my oldest child. My oldest child had leukemia. And when she was 10 months old, the doctor said, you're going to lose this child. Go home, get pregnant right away because you're going to lose this child. So she did. And she said what happened afterward was kind of devastating because the first child died 10 days before the second child was born. And she was talking about that, and she said, I was so exhausted and so grief stricken that it was very hard for me to connect to this child. And I know I often don't treat her as well as I should. And you know, this is what happens when you have a child to replace when, okay. And all of a sudden, I went, wham, you know, all of a sudden, start, pieces started coming together for me. And, you know, there's a wonderful saying, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And it happened that I just would run into people who would start talking about, oh, well, I had a brother, or I had a sister who died, or I was, and I'm going, this is a thing. This isn't only me. I used to think I was the only one. And when I would talk about them, there were similarities. There were a lot of similarities. My mother was very critical. She was very loving, but very critical. And it was always like, you know, your brother made A's. Why are you making C's? Why are you, you know, I always felt like I was competing with the ghost. And I never understood. It really made me have a lot more sympathy for my mother when I started to understand what was going on and that there was no help for her at that point. You know, it, it just wasn't. And the more I spoke to people, the more I realized that this is really huge. I mean, this affects either the person I'm speaking to or someone they know or their child or their grandchild.
1: Yes, yes.
0: And it-, it can be a result of a miscarriage and a pregnancy loss. You know, there's like,
1: it needs to be addressed. It absolutely does. It seems that the number one key is awareness, becoming aware. And I think that this is what your book is mm-hmm. doing by giving us examples, because you may not know, you may think, well, I'm not really, but then you read the story of someone, you're like, oh my gosh, and I think, and maybe I'm wrong, Abigail, but I don't think so, that it's never too late to deal with these issues.
2: This is exactly what I was just thinking as Rita was really, yes, it's it's never too late. You know, you can, as Rita and I were talking earlier, she found this out when she was in her 30s, and that provided her that many more pieces to be able to one, feel sympathy for her mother, but then two, also to understand what was going on in their own dynamic and which helped her enormously to just get a handle on the way she has been raised and how, you know, the feelings toward her. So it's never too late to get pieces of yourself back from history and from people just, you know, explaining things to you that you never knew before. In families, some families, it's talked about all the time. and some families, it's never talked about. There was one woman who told us that she was 15 when she found out about a child before her. And someone in the family said, you know, you better tell her because she'll find out there's other people that knew. She'll find out from other people will be devastating. Well, it was. She found out from her family. And she was absolutely devastated by the fact that she never knew that there were other children in the family, there were siblings before that passed. So it's very important to have that information, and then to be able to fit in pieces that were missing for you about your own psychology, your own feelings about the world, about yourself, your own self-esteem.
1: I think it's really important to talk to someone about that too. Yeah. And, you know, most of our listeners are you know, of a certain age. And I think this will come as such an enlightened thought to many of them when they are reflecting on their own lives or the lives of some of their friends, as it did to me, because I have friends whose siblings have passed or were always troubled or committed suicide. And I can look at them and go, oh, my gosh, even though they weren't mistreated, what they thought was they had to take on the onus. They had to be the perfect person, right? People
2: pleasers. Yes. That's the, I'm not, I'm sorry, many I'm in, Go ahead, Abigail. No, I was going to say in many instances, that's exactly right. You know, perfection is one of those key things too. In certain families where children feel that they need to be absolutely the best in order to make their parents happy to make up for this loss. Or they've been told by the parents that this other's child was absolutely the golden child, couldn't do no wrong. And they try to make up and be as best as they can to be similar to that child, which is a tremendous burden.
0: It is. It's- well, we call that uh, the, the reason we call the replacement children the unconscious script. The script is what we identify with, you know, our roles in life. Um, what we subconsciously assume, believe, values of our family and expectations of our parents. And lots of times you're taking that on for somebody else. If you are the replacement child in the family and you don't realize it. Um, And it's really
1: sometimes throwing off who you aren't to find who you are. Mm, That's a really good way of putting it. Throwing off who you aren't or discovering who you aren't to find out who you are. That's, that's pretty powerful. And I think that as you're reading the stories, you will see snippets of yourself. Let's tell us a little bit about some of these celebs that you talk about, like Barbara Walters. We all know Barbara Walters. I think her story is very interesting. I think people would find that um, fascinating. When you guys want to share?
0: It, you know, her story is very interesting because not only did she follow the death of a brother, but she also had an older sister who had um, some issues, you know, who had delayed, uh, I can't remember. You know, do you remember, Abigail? I'm just looking right here. and She
2: was was handicapped. She had certain mental limitations, let's put it that way. And um, so Barbara basically became her caretaker, if you will, not so much the everyday things, but she would try to make up for her, try to be around her, try to take her places, try to do things with her, you know, try to and make her life a better thing than it was because clearly she was not going to have the kind of life Barbara Walters had and by any stretch of the imagination. So there was a, a, lot of, a lot of sympathy for the sister and a lot of burden to, to Barbara Walters for feeling that she needed to somehow do something for her sister, a makeup for her sister. And, make up for her sister. and uh, she was a very, uh, an incredible achiever, yeah. so.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you say that, that she had that ambition, that need to achieve, because she knew that somehow she would be someday totally responsible for her sister uh, Jackie. Right. Yeah. yeah,
0: like you know, we wrote about the need to achieve for Barbara was beyond her sheer ambition and the recognition that she would be the one responsible for her sister's future.
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. And I think there was a, a, an element of, of guilt, too, that she was, you know, perfect and healthy and could live this kind of life. And her sister was life would be very limited. Right. So what are
1: the ways that replacement children can begin to heal? Is it dependent on what their specific issues are, whether it is a self-esteem or uh, people pleaser? Is that is it dependent on how they manifest their... You know feelings about being a replacement child? Well, I just wanted to say what's so interesting about this is so often the
0: root of everything is going back to being a replacement child and it's not touched on by most therapists. And then you can kind of unravel. Abigail, I think this is more your field than mine about how you can finally get to the root of something that you know, I have a passage in our book that I can read after you have explained that, that's really explains it so well.
2: Uh, well, you know, I, I, I think that um, um, a lot of people, well, w- w- actually Rita, why don't you read that first? And then I, I will explain that.
0: Okay, this is by a gal named Shelley, and her eight-year-old sister who was perfect was run over by a car and shelly was born afterward and the father never could get over it and it was always well she could do ballet it too why can't you do it so shelly kept trying and trying and trying and she wrote this passage and i think this explains it so well she says until i was contacted for this book i never understood that i'd been telling myself i am a failure because i am not perfect I am not like Jennifer, and I have convinced myself that being perfect is the price I must pay for being born. I have been through years of therapy with a very good therapist, but not once have we talked about Jennifer, except as one of my many tragedies in my life. We have talked about my fear and obsession with death, but in the context of being afraid of failure. We've talked about how I was never listened to as a child, but not because I was always being looked at as someone else. I have gone over how my parents were well-meaning, but unable to help me because they were dealing with their own grief after the loss of their child, but not how the loss of their child kept me from finding my own identity.
2: Right. So very often what happens is somebody gets blocked from pursuing their own goals and their own wishes and dreams, their own path, because they are on the path of making up for this shadow, child, if you will. And so much of what they do is redirected in that direction, that they can spend the time thinking about who they are personally, and until they find out that these other dynamics have existed with another child. And then it's kind of like, I can separate now. This is this person over here, and this is me. And that is one way of of being able to separate and so-called individuate becoming your own individual and that there's no time that that can you can do that anytime you can individuate at any time in your life you don't have to be little which we mostly do when we're very little you could do it when you're much older too as long as you understand the dynamics that have made you be this other person you're sort of sharing an identity with somebody. And finally, you say, no, this is them. This is me. And now I can be myself.
1: It is so important for us all to do that, to all to individuate. And I'm sure we all have the baggage that comes from being raised by parents. They were human. And especially as older people, you know, our parents raising us in the 50s and 60s and 70s really weren't aware of, you know, what they could do to assist us in becoming the best individuals that we are. And I like, you know, there's so many great parts of the book that bring to light things that people will realize in their lives. You know, I love where you said, whether, and I think you could be a replacement child, probably even if an older sibling didn't pass away, but say moved away and disassociated from the family, right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, or if,
0: or if another child is suddenly on drugs in the family yeah. and another child has to suddenly be the good one, the perfect one, fill in.
1: Yeah, it's very vast. It's a very vast. And I think you're bringing to light and opening the eyes of so many people with this book. The stories are fascinating. It's, it's um, a little bit like a train wreck. You know, it's hard to to watch yep. and read, but you can't stop. I mean, not yeah. really. You just can't stop reading these stories because every story is like, "Oh, I'm glad that's not me,"
2: <laughs> or "Oh, <Absolutely. laughs> that's yeah. someone I know." There's a, a great, but, it's a know, great emotion in the book. These stories are really you know, heartbreaking in many instances, but also many people have to talk about being able to have gotten beyond it and, you know, become their own person, which is, you know, a very uh, encouraging for many, many people to hear and to see. But it, it is a very emotional book, that's for sure. And it's something very important to, to have, because so much of what has existed, as I said, probably two, three decades before, was not that at all. Yeah. Right. You know? It is. It's a.
1: It is a really good resource. It's a really good resource book to pick up and read a story and, and think about, because everybody in this has moved forward. I'm sure just by telling their story, seeing it in print, these people have, I feel like they probably have a burden lifted off of them. Oh. Right, and it's
0: for people 18 and 80 plus. Everybody can get something out of Replacement Children, the unconscious script. You know, on the other hand, the challenges that Replacement Children face often serve as a catalyst for unlocking their own rich creative potential, developing the skills. So, you know, there's definitely not, this isn't just down and out in Beverly Hills. (laughs) And, you know, we have so many people in here, Vincent Van Gogh, Elvis Presley, they're all like Catherine Hepburn. We have a lot of different
1: stories, Peter Sellers. They're all replacement children. And it is fascinating to read their stories and see how they have proven themselves to themselves and to the world as well yeah it's great Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. do you all
1: have before we close do you all have anything else either of you that you want to share a nugget from the book or a thought
2: well I think I uh, would like to emphasize that it's also we have stories from men too yeah. from fathers also about loss of children you know everyone always thinks it's the mother that, you know, feels the loss. Of course, she loses, you know, miscarriages miscar- and losing the child after carrying. But the father is also, I think this is a very important thing for men as well, too, because they don't often express in the same kind of way as women do their emotions around this. And so that's a very important piece, too, that it's for men as well.
1: Yes. And it gives them by reading it or having a woman buy it and share it with a Yes. male friend or spouse, gives them permission. You know, I think men need permission to be able to grieve. Men need and permission to be able to feel their feelings. And that's really nice that that's included as well.
2: Absolutely.
1: Rita, do you have anything in closing you want to share with us?
0: Well, I just want to say we, you know, we just went into the second edition of our book. And uh, one of the things that we mentioned, which is kind of becoming a more common word now, are rainbow children.
2: Right. And a rainbow
0: child is a child born live after a miscarriage or a death of another child. And we emphasize also how these parents need support because they're nervous now about having this happen again. A lot of them have PTSD. And so we address that in the book as well. Right. Oh, good.
1: Because that I had only recently heard that term because of some of my younger friends who have had miscarriages and they, will post on social media, this is my rainbow child. And so I had to look into what that is. And I think that's actually a really pretty way of describing it. It brings a more positive light to it. And it brings to them, they're able to talk about it. Right, right.
2: right. Let and me we- say though too, if I may, that a rainbow child, a lot of parents misunderstand it from our, our writing, a rainbow child is not a replacement child. No. Children right. work with families and are welcomed uh, can be referred to as rainbow children, if you will. Um, uh, yeah. People are happy, and there's, you know, incredible uh, gladness for their, their coming right. into the and they're treated as, you know, just special individuals unto themselves. It's very different from replacement, right. and I, we that's a very important distinction. Yeah. No, that's the
0: one thing I wanted to emphasize again, that children born or adopted after the death of a child are not replacement children. This is a trauma response that happens afterward. Yeah. That's,
1: so important. That, that's important. That's important to know. Important because it's not everyone. Dating. I don't think I was a replacement child, no, even though no, I was adopted. Not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No. But it's great. Well, ladies, Rita and Abigail, thank you so much for sharing your time here with me today. Well, thanks for inviting us. Thank you very much. Thanks. Oh, of course. We will put the information in the show notes about the book. But again, it's called Replacement Children, The Unconscious Script. It's a really, really lovely book. You know, it is heartwarming and eye-opening and sad. You get all the emotions in it. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you both. And until next time, Tomatoes, I'm signing off.